I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. I want to read the verses 22 through to the end of the chapter. No, 22 through to the end of verse 37. 22 through to the end of verse 37. And that entire narrative will make up our text, so I'm not going to read it again. Hear the word of God with me. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub that the prince, the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart and mouth, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word may add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Jordan with me this afternoon. It is sad but true that if a lie is told often enough and loudly enough, people will believe it. And that phenomenon has been dubbed as the big lie theory. Nero used it when he fingered the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome. Hitler used it to convince his country that the post-World War I economic troubles of Germany were because of the Jews. Putin uses it today to convince the Russian population that his slaughter of thousands of innocent Ukrainians is justified and even necessary. We see the scribes and the Pharisees attempting the same ploy here in our text. Fixing the context a little bit, Jesus had just healed another demon-possessed man. And the Pharisees denounced his power by repeating that he was getting his power from the devil. It's only by Beelzebul that the prince, the prince of demons that this fellow drives out demons, they said. They had suggested that for the first time already in Matthew chapter 9. 
There he healed a man who had been mute, and immediately the Pharisees claimed that Jesus' healing power was derived from the leader of the demons, Beelzebul. And they brought it up again here because of two new circumstances. Jesus had performed another dramatic public exorcism, and secondly, the common people had begun to speculate that Jesus just might actually be the son of David. They began to consider that he might actually be the promised coming Messiah, and consequently, the Pharisees were beginning to fear that they were losing their grip on the people, and that needed to be addressed. They needed to undermine this Galilean who was stealing their thunder, and so they began to repeat and spread the lie that Jesus was in cahoots with Satan. According to our text, the healed man had been a true, in a truly <coughs> dreadful condition. A demon had possessed him, and as a result, the man could neither talk nor see, and it would be legitimate for us to go beyond the physical in this narrative for just a moment. What I, what I mean is, Scripture often teaches us, our Lord himself did, but, but, but Scripture often teaches us to think of physical ailments in spiritual terms. For instance, Jesus teaches us of vines and branches, and he taught us of the barren fig tree. But in both instances, the meaning of the parable had nothing to do with vines or figs, but it is a spiritual condition that Jesus was referring to. We can do the same thing here. We notice that the man could not talk. He could not see. He could not even speak in order to call out to Jesus to save him. He could not even find his way to come to Jesus. And so what we have there is a perfect image of one who is dead in sin and trespass. You see, dead people cannot see. Dead people cannot hear. Dead people cannot walk. They cannot even move. And if they are going to come alive in Christ, they will need to be brought to Christ. And so was the man of our text. We read the man was brought by his friends. Brought to, to, his friends brought this helpless sinner to the Savior and Jesus had compassion and healed him immediately. What What a beautiful portrait here of spiritually dead men and women lying at the feet of Jesus having been brought to him by the Father himself that Jesus might heal them. But there's much more here in our text and in fact, We need to acknowledge that we are confronted here in our text with some things hard to understand. We learn here of the unpardonable sin. And frankly, the sin against the Holy Spirit of God has never been fully explained by even the most learned of Bible scholars. And although Scripture is quite clear about what it is not, just precisely what it is is not quite so obvious. And that ought not to surprise or discourage us For after all, the Bible simply would not be the Bible. It would not be the book of God if it did not have deep places, places or things things hard for us to understand, much less adequately explain. And now our text of this afternoon speaks of a miracle, a miracle performed by our Lord, but it also speaks of so much more. In the context of that miracle, the text speaks of sinning against the Spirit, And as we examine the text, we want to consider the miracle precipitating the sin. We will examine the controversy generated by the sin. And finally, we want to listen to the warning against the sin. So sinning against the spirit. The miracle precipitating the sin, the controversy generated by the sin, 
and the warning against the sin. Congregation, this peculiar case of healing, this particular miracle of our Lord, takes place in Galilee, and it's recorded by two of the evangelists in our Bible. Matthew gives it to us in this chapter, chapter 12 of his gospel, and Luke records a parallel account in chapter 11 of his. And this afternoon, I want to refer primarily to the narrative given us by Matthew. And people of God, the the thoughtful reader considers the narrative and immediately notices again that all men and women, all men in the world belong to either one of two or two camps. Think with me, for instance, of Jesus' own words in his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. And there we hear him saying, Father, Father, I pray not for those of the world, but I pray for those whom thou hast given me. And so Jesus separates those who belong to him from those who do not. And now we see that again here in this text. While some people were busy bringing the poor man to Jesus, others were occupied very differently. Some were busy bringing friends and loved ones to Jesus for healing, while others were doing all that they could to prevent people from going to the Lord. It's always been so. It always will be so. On the one hand, there are those who belong, who still belong to their father, Satan, who are busy trying to prevent the coming of the kingdom. And on the other hand, we see those who belong to their father, God, through Jesus Christ. And as a consequence, we see them now bringing their friends to Jesus so that the kingdom of God might expand and come even more quickly. In verse 14, just prior to our text, we read that just as these friends were bringing their friends to Christ, the Pharisees were plotting how they might destroy him. And it is significant for us to note that. You see, the closer that Jesus moves to the cross, the greater and more vicious becomes the opposition, and that's also of primary interest of the evangelists as they recount this narrative for us. As Matthew and Mark recount this incident, the place, the details, even the miracle itself takes almost a back seat, if you will. Very little detail information is given us, and all of the attention, all of the attention focuses on the vicious slander of the Pharisees and the response, the reply of Jesus. Apparently, then, Scripture is not concerned that we know the details of the miracle. Oh, no, rather, the Holy Spirit wants us to focus. He wants us to focus our attention on that confrontation between Christ and the devil. And then he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand the consequence of rejecting Christ. And so we read the Pharisees plotted against him, how they might destroy him. And Jesus, being Jesus, being the Son of God, he knows their hatred. He knows the venomous animosity they have towards him, but he simply continues going on about his work. He goes on healing the poor and the sick, and then we read in verse 15, a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. In other words, everyone who was troubled, everyone whose heart was heavy, Everyone who came to him seeking cleansing of the soul and or healing of the body received from Christ health and life and restoration and whatever, precisely what they were in need of. And then in verse 16, we read that he charged those whom he healed not to make it known. 
In other words, the prophecy concerning him in, in, in other words, in order that the prophecy concerning him in Isaiah 42 might be accomplished. And it is again good for us to note that for just a moment. We need to capture here the fact that everything Christ did in his life on earth, in everything that he did, he was committed to carrying out the will of his Father. Follow this with me. As you read your Bibles, so often you read the words that Jesus did such and such a thing in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And now here we see a prophecy of Isaiah being perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Already in the Old Testament, Isaiah had said in chapter 42 that the promised one, the Christ then, that he would bring justice, would go about his work quietly, without fanfare. He would receive and not reject the weak or the poor in spirit, and he would bring salvation to the Gentiles. And that now is precisely what we see of him here in our text. The scriptures were being fulfilled. We see Jesus quietly going about his work, healing both Jews and Gentiles. He called, he called no unnecessary attention to himself, and all who came to him in contrite heart and broken spirit were given life, life now and forever, through the vicarious atonement that would yet take place on Golgotha. And then as our chosen text opens up, we read, and one was brought to him, demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him. Consider this with me now. First of all, the, de- the demoniac could not and would not come of himself. He could not because he was blind and therefore he was unable either to see his way or to see Jesus and he would not come because being possessed with a devil, his will and, and all the powers of his soul and mind were held captive by the devil. And a devil, a a, a demonic influence, had this man captive, had him in his clutches, and would never allow this man to go to Jesus, would he? Of course not. People of God, capture this scene with me through the eyes of your faith. Imagine this with me. What a picture this presents of a poor, blind, and mute sinner, totally possessed by Satan. He had been brought to Jesus by friends, and we see him now lying helplessly, waiting before the Lord. And it was a very distressing, and in some respects, it was a a singular case, this demoniac. In the first place, this poor man was possessed with a devil. A strange influence from the spirit world had seized him. He was a helpless victim in the power of an evil spirit and was therefore raving mad. And we've heard of several similar instances in Scripture, but in this instance, we see something different. We read that this particular demoniac had an almost an unusual and a peculiar complication of, 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 of symptoms. He was mad, or if you will, he was deranged. But this deranged lunatic was also blind and mute. That was unusual. We read of several in Scripture who were blind, and there are several instances recorded of those who were deaf and or mute, but this is the only instance of of madness, blindness, and muteness in the Scriptures. In other words, this particular demoniac had an abundance of afflictions. His mind was gone because it had become the possession of of a demonic spirit. He could not see, and his tongue apparently stuck to the roof of his mouth, for he could not speak. 
And yet we know from our text that, that despite all of his infirmities, Jesus healed him. Should we not see in this that there is no obstacle too great for Jesus? Should we not see here that even, even great infirmity is no obstacle for the Lord to demonstrate grace and healing and mercy? Of course. And of course that is part of the narrative, but, but we need to see something else here for just a moment. You see, the man was blind. He could not see. So too for all men and women as they come into this world. They're unable to see their lost and hopeless condition. And they're unable to see their need of the Christ. The eyes of their understanding are darkened and they're without spiritual light or sight. Moreover, moreover, he was also mute. He was speechless. Unable to, unable to even make his case known to the Lord. Oh, my dear precious people of God. We see ourselves in this man. People who are blind and mute because of the power of Satan can only lay prostrate at his feet. But, but, but unless the Lord opens their hearts, unless the Lord opens their heart and their mouth and their eyes, they cannot even cry out, Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, what a graphic picture we're given here of ourselves when still in the clutches of Satan before the Lord has opened up our hearts and regenerated us. But Jesus had mercy and compassion, and Jesus healed him. And then Matthew tells us, and all the multitudes were amazed. Well, not all the multitudes, not the Pharisees. The effects produced in the hearts of those that witnessed this miracle was profound. All the people were amazed. They were overcome with admiration for the great physician. And they said, is this not the son of David? They were astounded by what they saw. And they were persuaded that no one other than the Christ, the Messiah, could do such an amazing thing. And so, can this be the son of David? They were echoing the words of the disciples of John the Baptist when they too asked Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one sent by God? Are you the one we've been waiting for all these years? Or must we continue to look for another? People of God, capture this with me now. The entire purpose of miracles in the first place was to authenticate the word of God for those who had faith. And that is precisely what we see happening in our text. Jesus performs this amazing miracle and those who already had and or those who in God's sovereign choice would yet receive the gift of faith, they were immediately aware that an amazing miracle had been performed by this man whom they could see was no ordinary man. For we read that immediately the crowds began to inquire of the things of the kingdom. That is all the people inquired except the Pharisees. No, they were not impressed. Why not? Because they were still in that other kingdom. They were still of their father, the devil. Oh, they were not astonished. Oh, no. They saw the miracle, but in it they saw their own authority slipping out of their grasp. And they saw once again the crowds turning to Jesus rather than to them. And that they could not, would not tolerate. And now notice with me how they responded. They had a ready answer to the miracle having stood there, having seen it with their own eyes, or having heard it immediately from those who had seen it themselves, they could not appeal to the natural as do the modernists and liberals of today. What I mean is they could not explain the miracle away. 
They could not do as unregenerate men and women are wont to do today and say, well, you know, the story given us in the Bible might not be really accurate. You know, the story could only simply be a story, a story meant to teach us a truth, but the narrative itself may not be literally true. We hear it all the time. Oh, indeed, to the modern unbelieving mind, the exorcism by Jesus can also be explained away on the basis of of, of psychological principles which can only be understood by the wisdom of modern psychology. You see, learned men of science, they will say, modern psychology can explain how the mind plays tricks. And so this supernatural act, it really didn't happen, they say. Modern, unbelieving, enlightened, enlightened minds would tell us that the crowds were worked up into such a frenzy there in Palestine that their minds played tricks on them. The miracle really only happened in their minds. That's how modern, unbelieving men and women explain away the mysteries of the kingdom. But the Pharisees of our text, they couldn't appeal to that theory. For the miracle was staring them in the face. They were eyewitnesses of it. What now to do? And you would think that faced with such incontroversible evidence of the miracle that they would have to acknowledge Jesus' divine authority. But sadly, no. No, no. They were not faced. They were not amazed. They had a ready answer. They acknowledged that Jesus actually did perform the miracle. They even admitted that it was a supernatural act which Jesus had done. They admitted that the miracle went beyond the ordinary and obviously someone greater than an ordinary man was at work here. They acknowledged that. That much they would admit. They had seen it with their own eyes. It would not help their credibility to try to deny what they and all these people had just seen. But their hearts were so hardened that they still refused to give God the glory. Instead, they give credit to Satan And they argued blasphemously, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. My dear precious saints of God gathered here with me. Notice carefully what the Pharisees had just done. They had put Jesus in the same camp as Satan. According to them, Satan and Jesus were working in tandem Jesus and Satan were cooperating together. And that was the big lie that the Pharisees wanted promoted among the Jews. According to the lie of the Pharisees, Satan was Jesus' friend. And Satan gives Jesus occasional power to cast out demons. And that explanation made it all plain, and it did even more. It made thorough work of discrediting Jesus' reputation. And in their corrupt minds, this explanation would stop the influence of this imposter. After all, who would follow a man who was so obviously in cahoots with Satan? The text tells us that Jesus knew their thoughts. Of course, Jesus not only knew their thoughts, He knew even their hearts. And on this occasion, he confronts them in their lie. Very frequently, Jesus simply ignored criticism, but not this time. The blasphemy was just too serious and too obvious. It's as if Jesus Jesus considered that this time the Pharisees had crossed the line. 
This time they had gone too far. They'd gone over the top. And, 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 and it was too, it was too the, the, the sin was too blatant. The lie was too blatant for him to just ignore them. And so we read that on this occasion, he entered into a detailed refutation of the gross and malicious charge against him. And we noticed that he used three arguments to prove to them that it was not so. Follow this with me. Jesus, first of all, showed that his kingdom was not in tandem with Satan's, but it was, in fact, antagonistic to it. If the man was possessed by a demon, and he obviously was, and if Jesus was using the power of demons to cast out demons, then obviously Satan was working against himself, and that made no sense, even logical sense. So that couldn't be true. Then Jesus appealed to their own rites of exorcism. Apparently, some of the sons of the Pharisees were also able to cast out demons. And Jesus now asks them, by whose power did their children cast out devils? Since they denied that God was involved in a miracle, by whom then did the sons of the Pharisees do it? It was a clever trap. If they said by the power of God, then they could hardly deny Jesus the same privilege. If they said by Beelzebul, they would be condemning themselves. Either way, They could not answer, and they stood in mute silence. Then finally Jesus said, If you saw someone in possession of the spoils belonging to a strong man, then you would have to conclude that the strong man had been overpowered. And in the same way, Jesus had overcome Satan. And here was the evidence. Jesus had taken the spoils. Jesus had taken the man out of Satan's grip and set him free. The man had been possessed by a devil, and Jesus had freed him from the devil's dominion. So obviously, Jesus' work was not done by Satan, but against Satan. And so it was plain for all and sundry to see that the conclusion of the Pharisees was false. My dear people, God, now pay close attention for the further response of Jesus to the Pharisees there on that day in Palestine needs to be heard well and understood by us all. For Jesus rebukes them and warns them, and he warns us all, that there exists such a thing as a sin that cannot and will not be forgiven. In the verses 31 and 32 of our text, Jesus says that a refusal to believe is sinful and dangerous. One sin leads to another, and rejection of the Christ sometimes leads even to an unforgivable rejection. And such now was the case here with the Pharisees. For Jesus accused them of having done what was unforgivable. We read, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Congregation, those are frightening words. And they are intended to be so, but they have also been unnecessarily alarming for some people. Most ministers, myself included, have had people come to them, sometimes in great despair, wondering if perhaps, perhaps they may have committed the unforgivable sin when they have done no such thing. 
In fact, if such a struggle confronts you on occasion, let it be a great source of comfort for you to know that if you are truly and honestly distraught over the fact that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, your distress is in fact evidence that you have done nothing of the kind. A person who has committed the unpardonable sin will not have the grace of God in their hearts to be troubled by it. Their hearts are already so totally calloused and hardened. The fear that you might have sinned unforgivably is the best possible proof that you have not. Still, we dare not take the warning of these words lightly, but we must interpret correctly. And the context makes it clear, at least in part, what the unforgivable sin is. It is what the Pharisees had done. They had called good evil and evil good. Or to put it in another way, they had called the good works of God in delivering the demon-possessed man demonic. They had called a sin against the Holy Spirit. This is called a sin against the Holy Spirit because the work was done by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Pharisees were identifying the Spirit of God with Satan. The Pharisees had so hardened their hearts against the Christ of God that they were now attributing God's work to Satan. They had hardened themselves so far that God had totally removed his restraining grace from them so that repentance on their part was now no longer possible. And without repentance, there can be no forgiveness Therefore, there was no hope left for these men, not in this world, nor in the, in the world to come. My dear precious saints of God, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 that the root problem is the rejection of the truth about God. And that rejection, says Paul, soon leads to a downhill path of perversion ending with what he calls a depraved mind. A depraved mind is the confirmed mental state of those who not only practice sin, but who also approve of those who practice sin. And those who approve of evil are saying that those evil practices are right. And that the, and in contrary, that the good acts, they must be evil. And this is precisely what the Pharisees were doing. And scripture teaches us that those who have hardened themselves to that extent are beyond hope. And my dear people of God, lest we dismiss this too readily, we need to keep in mind that this is exactly what Paul is saying of a declining secular society such as our own. Think with me. Follow with me. The concept here is urgent, especially for us in our day. Paul explains in his letter to Romans that those who approve evil are saying that those evil practices are right and that the contrary good acts must be evil. My dear precious saints of God, is that not exactly what we see all around us today? People in our culture are protesting and arguing loudly and convincingly the big lie. We are being told that evil things such as abortion, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgendering, and all the rest, that they are good and they are acceptable and that those who speak against these things, they are evil, they are dangerous, and therefore Christianity must be silenced, it must be stopped, it must be legislated out of being. But, but, But if we believe our Bibles, 
If we believe what Jesus has just explained to us here, what hope is there then for men and women of our culture? What hope is there for our legislators who call evil good and good evil? What hope is there then for our nation and our culture? We need to consider Christ's warning as individuals and as a nation for the consequence of rejecting the truth of God are dire and even terrifying. But, 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 but the danger for us exists since the warning has been directed at the Pharisees and their particular sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, we're tempted to, to lean back and merely consider ourselves to be spectators in the bleachers. This doesn't really apply to us. Jesus was condemning them. But, but, but Jesus' words are not only sobering for the Pharisees, they are sobering for us as well. Since in the last verses of this section we read, Jesus speaks to people exactly like us. My dear precious saints of God, we need to notice the change that comes in verses 36 and 37. Up till now, the words are directed at the Pharisees. He was addressing those whom he himself had identified as a brood of vipers. Jesus even speaks to them directly using the words, you, how can you, Pharisees? How can you, you vipers? How can you who are evil say anything good? Verse 34. But in these last two verses, what he says is directed to all men, which includes us, when he says, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus speaks to you, and he speaks to me. And he speaks to all men. And these verses are more sobering even than Jesus' teaching about the unforgivable sin. Follow with me. In the previous section, the words he is talking about were the evil or particularly malicious words of the scribes and the Pharisees. But here in these two verses, Jesus speaks of merely using careless or idle words. And that's something of which every one of us, not just especially depraved or evil persons, are guilty of. And Jesus said that even those careless or idle words are sufficient to condemn you at God's judgment throne. Can you understand how serious this is and how desperate it makes your case? A careless word would probably be the least offensive act you have committed. There are sins in our lives which are far greater than an idle, thoughtless word. But if even that single careless word is sufficient to condemn you at God's judgment, how much more than the other sinful evils you have done? How about your envy of other people? Or your greed or your depravity? Or how about strife and deceit and malice or or slander? Have you ever slandered anyone? How about insolent words, arrogant words, or boastful words? How about the times you disappointed or disobeyed or even dishonored your parents? What about your senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, or otherwise blatantly non-Christian behavior? How about your neglect of the things of the kingdom? These are sins Paul lists at the end of that sobering first chapter of Romans. Things that, that deserve death. And we are guilty of them all. Not to mention the fact that we have not loved God with all of our hearts, souls, and minds, and strength, nor have we loved our neighbor as ourselves. And if we are guilty of those things, in addition to being careless with our words, 
How can we escape God's judgment? Oh, my dear precious saints, the truth of the matter is we cannot. We need a Savior. We need Jesus who died for the words we have carelessly spoken as well as for the more obvious sins we have committed. We need him who bore the punishment for us for all of our sins on the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But we also need to stop speaking those careless words. We tend to take words lightly. We say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But words do hurt And the Bible takes words spoken by Christians very seriously. James wrote about that when he says, says, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, the tongue, we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be, says James. So what's the remedy? The only answer is a radical change of heart. For as Jesus said, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. We need a cleansed heart. We need a new heart. And the only way we can receive a changed new heart is by new birth, being born again by water and the Spirit. But now capture this with me. The born-again heart of a child of God, the born-again heart is a gift of God. We know that. But what is often forgotten in this context is what Paul teaches us so clearly in Philippians 1, where we read that he, God, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of salvation. And yeah, you knew that too, but did you understand what that means? It means that when God recreates the heart of a born-again child of his... God so guards and protects and preserves that heart of faith that it cannot, it will not, and it cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Let that blessed assurance be a comfort to you as you walk the road of necessary obedience and sanctification. Great and mysterious, even ununderstandable, I'm not sure that's a word, but ununderstandable things were set before us again this afternoon. We have been warned, we have been comforted, and above all, we are alerted once again to that great urgency of knowing the Lord. Shall we pray? Father, our hearts cry out, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. 